Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of the Independent Life Podcast. Today, our guest just had such a great conversation with Christine Waddell. She comes to us from the Southeast ADA Center. She is their state affiliate, and she is amazing. On this 32nd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, we got to talk about what life was like with her growing up with polio, a long time ago, decades before the ADA was ever passed. The importance of having a parent who is willing to teach and adapt and do so much. And she talks about what life was like before the ADA for her. But she also talks about the movement itself. You know, she got to meet some of the legends that we've talked about here on the podcast, whether it was Ed Roberts, who's recognized as you know, someone that was instrumental in starting the independent living movement, to Judy Human, uh, and what it was like to be an active member participating in the civil rights movement that brought us the ADA. She talks about the necessity for our current generation of people who uh, were born into a time where the ADA has always been there and and other laws that have ensured equal access and inclusion for people with disabilities. What's their role now? What's our role now? and continuing this great work that we are benefiting our lives from and don't know necessarily what life was like before these laws were on the books. She talks about her role as an ADA advocate, all the different types of trainings that she does, gives a a pretty good generalized description of what the ADA is, its ideals, and the spirit of it. She talks a lot throughout this whole conversation, I think the most important part in many ways, about the humanity and the humanitarianism that is connected with having a disabilities and how we perhaps you should be seeing disability and interacting with people who have disabilities and how it's not just about laws and enforcement of laws, but it's about connecting with people's hearts, that union that come from, you know, just this collective humanitarian experience that we all have uh, surrounding disabilities. So I couldn't think of a better interview Uh, and conversation to have in recognition and in celebration of this week that I'm recording this, the day before. I'm recording this on July 25th, 2022, and uh, tomorrow, July 26th, 2022, it'll be 32 years, the ADA on the books. And uh, just what 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 an honor it is to have just this wonderful conversation with Christine. I hope you enjoy hearing it as much as I had having it. Thank you and welcome to the Independent Life Podcast. I'm so very excited this week of the 32nd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act to have on Christine. Christine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If you don't mind, perhaps introduce yourself to our listeners and give them a little bit of background about your interest, either personally or professionally, uh, regarding disabilities. Well, um, I appreciate you inviting me. Um, My experience with disability started when I was four. I had polio one month before the vaccine was distributed. I originally was able to walk with braces and crutches. Um, I was very blessed to have had some great medical care early on. 
and um, just made my way through school. And one thing and another, just like everybody else, I guess, I had my, uh, I got married, had my family, was an Air Force wife for 24 years. And then um, I guess I, I needed a job and, and I did experience job discrimination. I, I needed to get a job. I went to vocational rehabilitation and uh, they ended up hiring me. After a number of years with vocational rehabilitation, I realized that my goals were a little bit different. So I left vocational rehabilitation and started working for Centers for Independent Living. I was very, very fortunate when the ADA was passed to have been chosen for training that was offered, uh, that was required by the law from the federal enforcement agencies. Uh, I was chosen for phase one, phase two, and phase three of those trainings. And it really deepened my understanding of the law and also deepened my ability to use my life experience and that information and combine them to try to assist people as best I could. Since the early 90s, I have worked with the Southeast ADA Center. The Southeast ADA Center provides training and technical assistance on the Americans with Disabilities Act. Every day is a, a day to learn. I love being involved with something that you, after all these years, I can still hear questions and thoughts and see situations that I have never even thought of, which makes it a very challenging and rewarding job to do. Wow. I love that. There's always something to learn, even though you have like decades of experience. And I absolutely want to get into your role and understanding of the ADA and uh, your thoughts about the anniversary. But before we get there, I definitely want to do a, a little bit of a deeper dive into your, your, your origin story, so to speak. But maybe for those who don't understand what it's like to grow up with polio, can you provide a bit of an insight into what that's all about? Well, I think being four years old um, probably allows you to think of it and accept it a little bit differently than when you're an adult. As a child, I didn't have to give up tennis. I didn't have to give up certain things because... I was four years old. However, I think sometimes my perspective might provide a different perspective to people who became disabled as adults. We, we lived, lived in Michigan. Michigan. I, I used braces, braces and crutches. I spent quite a few, a lot of time in Warm Springs, Georgia, which was an absolutely perfect place for a child who was in the hospital trees and wonderful, encouraging people. And it was established by President Roosevelt. And my, my grandmother said, you know, you don't have limits as a person with a disability. President Roosevelt had polio too. And he's president of, was president of the United States. So, you know, those kind of encouragements made me just discard any idea I had about my limitations. But when I was 10, 
it got a little bit hard for my mother to get me from the car into the school over the ice and snow. So she looked for a job in the South. And we moved. She got a job at Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi, Mississippi. And we moved to Mississippi when I was 10. Of course, we don't have weather issues here. And it was a wonderful move for everybody. Uh, She was a physician and she worked at the Air Force Hospital for 34 years. And uh, I went to part of elementary school, junior high, high high school, school, University of Southern Mississippi, Mississippi, uh, right right here in Southern Mississippi. Mississippi is a wonderful state. What what experiences did you have um, then going through school? Uh, Certainly, I would imagine it's before the time of the uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act or, you know, other kind of requirements that now, you know, the schools have and accommodations and perhaps even assistive technologies, um, even, you know, access into the building. So how, how would you like compare and contrast the times that you're going to school versus now and if there were barriers, uh, how you overcame them? Well, that is a really interesting question that I have, I've thought about a lot. You know, I could not, with my braces and crutches, sit down in a regular desk, you know, those ones that are connected. And the way we worked that out is my mother just came in and said to the teacher, she can't sit down in this desk. Can we get a table? You know, it was just a natural process of humanity to figure it out. I was a child who needed to go to school. In contrast, Judy Human, you may um, have heard, she was denied the right to go to school. Luckily, that didn't happen to me. When I got older, and, and, and there's a certain level of acceptance that one had to have in those days. So if I was uh, excluded from PE or from the recreational program, that wasn't a requirement. It wasn't a law. But boy, oh boy, did the children in my class vie for the opportunity to spend recess inside with me. So it was, you know, it was just sort of a natural thing. And I think sometimes people have become so worried about what the law says, that they have lost that ability to just within their own humanity to work things out, to use their common sense and their decency. I love what you're saying about humanity. And it seems as though, um, you know, your mom was just such an integral part between, you know, giving you the, the no limits mindset to you know, moving and relocating to a place that just would environmentally be better supportive of you coming into your classrooms to say, you know, this is what you need, the humanity approach and everything else like that. You know, what what else can you speak towards the importance of parents who have sons or daughters with disabilities and and what they need and perhaps even uh, need not do as, as a parent? Well, my parents and my grandparents were always of considerable uh, support to me, and it made all the difference in the world. Since my I have been working in the disability arena, I have gone to hundreds of IEP meetings with parents and children, and I'm troubled sometimes by parents sometimes almost 
I don't mean care too much, but limit too much. And sometimes you've just got to, you've got to take that off children. You've got to, and you've got to have teachers who are receptive to the idea that there are no limits. There, there are no limits. You have to let everybody reach their potential. Children have such incredible, incredible ability to just move forward and to accept. And I, I know sometimes for parents, it's scary. They probably think, oh my gosh, what if? But if you can't spread your wings, you never know exactly how far you can go. Right. Yeah. And, and I feel like sometimes we, you know, as a society, we uh, sometimes under index how just amazingly resilient and imagination as well that kids have uh, towards like adversities that, you know, us as adults might fear or have so many worries or concerns or anxieties about the current, present, future. Uh, and that I, I, I think I find my kids just maybe aren't caught up in that mindset and, and don't have the, as many limitations as they put on themselves or see in the world. And it's like we come across a lot of adults, for an example, who are very well intended and caring that will be limiting the independence of some of their sons or daughters. And we're here trying to promote independence. So you work for a Center for Independent Living. And I think out of you know, their concern for them or their well-being or maybe fear even are almost trying to, uh, in, you know, in a way, provide them the supports that, you know, they could actually learn to provide to themselves, themselves being the, you know, the, their sons or daughters. And, and do you find that at all? Like in terms, because we're talking, you know, about independent living as well, that sometimes we might be almost disempowering youth as parents who might be, you know, trying to help, but might be also limiting their independence. I think it's very hard for parents sometimes because they want to be protective want to be protective of their children, uh, but it is allowing a person to meet the world as it is, learning coping skills as you go along. I honestly don't know who I would be had I not had polio because I, I look people in the face and I smile and I speak to strangers. My children, by the way, tease me about that continually, but I try to make people comfortable with looking at me. Otherwise, all they're seeing is our disability, our equipment, and, and they forget that we're just a person who gets around a little bit differently. So you're, you're, you're already going towards like some of the strengths that you've received from, from having polio. So you're, you're outward, you're social, you're, you're being disarming perhaps in a way of other people that are coming across uh, to you, trying to get them to perhaps see you the person first and not just you know the disability or the limitations of the disability. What other strengths uh, or positive aspects of having polio have come into your life? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I have raised three incredible children who have a completely different perspective on the world than they might have had they not been involved in not only my disability, but also in my activities that I have done with the disability movement. I mean, they have been to marches, they have been to the White House, they have been to conferences, and they are just extremely sensitive and comfortable with disability. 
Um, my grandchildren, two of them are a little bit too small, but the my adult grandchildren, again, they just are absolutely uh, sensitive to people with disabilities, sensitive to their environment. They make suggestions. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just really incredible to see that. And I also have gotten to meet and interact with some of the most incredible people on this earth through my work, my advocacy, trainings I've received and trainings I've given. Many people I, I might not have met otherwise. So I believe that this was 100% the life I was meant to live. So when you talk about raising your kids and they're, they are, they're having their sensitivities now and their, their world's expanded in, into disability, I, I myself am looking to hopefully do that. I, my kids are uh, you know, 10, 7, and uh, 4. And so I'm really, so they're, they're, then they don't have disabilities, but um, are learning a lot through me about what it's like to have a, a disability and my thoughts about disabilities and you know, seeing other kids in their class or other people that they're encountering in their life that have disabilities. And it is just such a wonderful uh, part of that, having a disability and being able to impart some of what I've learned about it and seeing how they then process it and their level of acceptance. And it is beautiful. And at the same time, I'm also, I've experienced some limitations, you know, and challenges as a parent, like all parents have challenges. And um, so I can't drive uh, because of my low vision and sometimes uh, eyesight's necessary to keep them safe or do other kind of things. I, I've had to learn how to adapt in, in several areas and that um, I might have some limitations with parenting. Did you come across experiences where you had to also adapt as a parent? And if so, what was that like? Well, you know, as you said, we all have to adapt in our parenting. Uh, continue adapting. but um, Continue adapting and learning. I love it. <laughs> Yes, yes, it's ongoing, even now when they're adults. Because they're still your kids, uh, always be your kids, right? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. I think that one of the things that freed me was when I did have to go to a power chair. Oh, I guess first a scooter and then a power chair. And Mm -hmm. it made me so incredibly more mobile that I was really better to deal with a lot of the issues uh, that might impacted my children. You know, at, at one point I might sit in the car and they might run into the store uh, when they were old enough. But, mm-hmm. you know, once I had a scooter and a power wheelchair, I could do Disney World with them. So my mobility devices and freeing my hands, or at least one of my hands, helped. And then, you know, as we age, these limitations sort of sneak up on us that are partly our disability and partly getting older. Uh, So it really, in our minds, in my mind, I have to try to stay flexible and willing to understand that my coping, my adapting will never end. Yeah. That's powerful. I think that's a superpower, being able to adapt uh, to, to any of those circumstances that you know, will face us in life uh, with or without a disability. 
You know, I'm, I'm struck, you know, just thinking about this now. So you, you mentioned Judy Human earlier. I'm also thinking of Ed Roberts, who I'm sure you know about is, you know, someone that's recognized as, you know, very instrumental in the uh, independent living movement and his advocacy, you know, to get into Berkeley. You yourself, you know, with polio. So, and Ed Roberts had polio, Judy Human had polio. You have polio. Yeah. What what is it about polio, perhaps, that lends itself to people becoming extremely um, talented advocates? I mean, is it about polio, or is it? I mean, like, I'm I'm looking at this as like, is this a random effect, or is this you know something that's I don't know. I don't take that with what you want. Well, I don't know the answer to this either. I guess we the the three people you mentioned, myself and Ed and Judy. We all had a lot of years of coping without laws to protect us. Maybe that uh, pushed us. I was not involved at the very beginning, but meeting people like Ed and Judy and Justin Dart, meeting those people in person, being involved in those initial um, advocacy activities was just so powerful. It was not for myself. It was somewhat for my family. But a lot of my desire was just to help people coming up in the future. The thing that I worry about now is that many of our youth have grown up with these laws. They are used to having IDEA. They are used to having the ADA. And I want them to understand that and be as passionate about sharing and explaining and supporting these laws because it could, it might not be this way. You know, it might, some of it might be taken away. And I just want people, young people to get involved too. I'm going to circle back on this one because I think you're you're really hitting on something. I think that is a major concern. Um, before we get there, can you explain what those times were like before there was an ID, um, you know, the IDEA Act or the ADA and the civil rights movement? You know, it sounds like you had personal experience uh, in it. What was that like for you, or what were those times like for people with disabilities? And, and, and if you could, like, kind of almost like paint a picture of what that, that movement sounded like, felt like, looked like, you know, to get to the place where we had these laws on the books. Well, um, I could start with my college. I went to the University of Southern Mississippi, uh, which was a great experience for me. But there was no law requiring accommodations. So when I scheduled my classes... I couldn't schedule them back to back because I had to accommodate myself by understanding I would probably have to get into my first class, do the class, get back to my car, drive to the next class. So I could never schedule classes back to back. I had to take up the whole day to go to a few classes. You know, things like that would be different now and they're theoretically would be ways to work it out that would be more friendly to everybody. I guess I individuals with disabilities in the old days had to be more conscious that they were accommodating themselves. You had to figure out what you needed and figure out how to do it. 
now we do have protections and we just need to understand those protections well enough that we could exercise them fully in the most positive manner possible uh, and know that we also have protections legally if we're ignored. Did I answer your question? Definitely. You're helping to contrast like certain, you know, the times then and to times now. And as you're doing it, you know, I'm also thinking about like, is this certain level of, uh, ad, you know, kind of adversity? You know, so like back then the adversity was, you know, there wasn't a laws on the books and requirements and roles and responsibilities that were given to certain institutions to make sure that they were accommodating. And because of that adversity, that type of adversity, you know, it was more like about the individual coming up with the solutions, adapting, you know, and, and those kind of things. Nowadays, with the laws on the books, it looks a little different in terms of maybe the challenges is knowing what the laws are, knowing whose roles are responsible for it, how to advocate once you. So it's almost like a knowledge barrier in a way. And, and then maybe some skills that are needed to appropriately advocate where back then it, it, it seems like it was a it was a different kind of challenge that, that the adversity then. And, and I'm just kind of like in my head comparing and contrasting the adversities, like same kind of disability, someone with polio today versus, you know, polio decades ago when, when you were having it. And yes, there's adversities, but they're, they're almost like a different style or type of adversity. And I'm kind of also thinking about how, again, you know, people that are young have these laws on the books. And so I'm, I'm almost kind of thinking like the adversity is almost necessary for us to grow, evolve and to overcome. And, and I'm trying to like pull on that thread of the different kinds of adversities and then what it might take to get people engaged. So I don't know. What are your thoughts about what I just had to share there in my own head, comparing and contrasting the adversities that you grew up with versus those of today? Well, I, I really agree with your thoughts. I think a certain amount of adversity allows us to grow as people and as advocates. One thing that I have done in the past is I have done some training in schools um, before COVID. So you take a third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade kid, you go in there and you discuss disability with them. It is the most fascinating response that you get. They are so open-minded. One class I went into that I particularly remember is I was with a colleague of mine and she said, well, what would you all do if Ms. Christine wanted to be your teacher? Now, if I had applied for a teaching job, this would not have been the response I would have gotten. This little boy stands up. He says, we would just need to move that table over there and this table over here. And then Ms. Christine could be our teacher. I mean, it was totally, honestly, just a constructive solution to a problem that this child saw. And if we could take that into adults and, and you know, who knows, the more training and things that we do for children with and without disabilities may lead us to a future where adults think more like that. And maybe that's where the threat of humanity comes along. Do you feel like maybe children have a more connection to this, like what you were talking about earlier, humanity, when they, when they, 
you know, or in that situation when presented that question and the, and the kid starts just coming up with like logical solutions versus perhaps like an adult that has had many years of experience and maybe loses touch with the humanity of things. Is there maybe a, 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 a you know, kind of inverse relationship with the connection with humanity and age? I, I agree with you that that is sometimes definitely the case. I used to have a service dog who passed away and one time I was in Walmart. You know how people act around service dogs. They sometimes are inappropriate. This little child walked up to me. Here I am in my power chair. My dog is beside me. Little child walks up to, stands right in front of my dog. She was a lab. Um, his face was about at, his fa at her face. And he looked up at me and he said, ma'am, do you mind if I pet my dog? And I am like, you know, Lily, visit. And I thought, how is it that adults in this world don't understand things like that, but this little child does? So I, I do think it's valuable for all of us to reach out to children as much as we can. They are our future. Yeah, they are. Was there a feel back in going back to like the, the, the civil rights movement before the ADA? Like, was there a sense of because I, I just imagine like there is so much probably enthusiasm or energy uh, when the laws weren't there and the necessity to come together and the bonding that might have happened with the advocates that, you know, really did the hard work and the hard lifting to get this actually into law. Maybe I'm romanticizing this, but I just like feel like it. The 1990, you know, ADA didn't happen by accident. You know, there were lots of different ways that advocacy had to transpire. It had to be well organized. I mean, like, what was the energy or enthusiasm or tension or whatever it might be that was around this movement that led to the ADA becoming a law? Well, it was absolutely incredible, and most of us who met during those years have stayed connected with meetings and and marches and things like that up until COVID. And of course, you know, that was a lot of years ago. And some people have either retired or unfortunately passed away. So we don't have everybody that we had in the 80s, but it is just such a solidarity among a group of people who have common purpose and common focus that I believe the the group strengthened each individual. Belonging to this group strengthened the individual. Unity. Yes, unity. You know, I, I recognize that whether it's, uh, you know, blocking traffic in Manhattan, um, whether it was a sit-in in San Francisco, or like you said, marches, those are certainly necessary. Uh, and and sometimes I think those those kind of moves have like the, the largest visibility in many ways. And um, but what did, what what were other very important but maybe even unseen advocacy strategies that were needed back then? And I ask this in the context of today. So when when we work with people to advocate today, I'm going to say that a lot of them are what I consider to be say keyboard advocates. So like maybe they're they're blogging or they're 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 social media posting or you know, doing those kind of things and maybe they'll show up to a rally. But, the, you know, what I find is, is a, a kind of day in, day out, unseen advocacy that, it, you know, is kind of like boots on the ground, in the trenches kind of things are, are really in many ways what moves the needle. But I, I don't know back then 
if there were also an accompaniment, I would imagine there are, but that day in and day out kind of advocacy that wasn't maybe televised as a march um, that were necessary to get in the ADA on the books. Well, of course, you know, back in the beginning, there wasn't all this electronic stuff, but visits to legislators, that was really powerful. Our, our key to making a difference, I think, is to letting uh, people know we're just a regular person. We are a regular person. We have the same issues, the same problem, same responsibilities as everybody else. We're just trying to make our way through life. And I don't think everybody immediately sees us as a real person. I think they just think, oh, well, that's that person with a disability over there. They're always taken care of. But that's not what life is. What have you found effective to, to reorienting people that might have that kind of point of view? So they, they compartmentalize maybe disability. They see things in the way you just described it. How do you get to somebody like that to, to kind of reorient them to the reality? Well, I think it's just important to meet with people on an individual basis, to contact them on an individual basis, to let them know what issues we're experiencing, but also others are experiencing. I find it is very, it's an honor and a privilege and an incredible responsibility to speak for others sometimes. Um, but I just feel like some people just simply don't get it. They just simply don't get it. And if I can take them one step closer to understanding that people with disabilities have real lives and we just need fair consideration, we just need access, that I've you know done something maybe to make an impact. I always hope. Planting seeds at the very least. So maybe they, they might not get that orientation now, but you know, we'll perhaps be one step closer, you know, having yeah. had that experience. And maybe that's what it is, too, is people having their own individual experiences with disability themselves or someone that's really close to them, you know, and, and having a disability and, uh, you know, having those lived experiences perhaps is always the best way. Very often that is the people who are most sensitive. Right. Like the legislators that I've met with, it's like, you know, that seem to be most receptive are the ones that, you know, have sons, daughters or themselves have a disability and they kind of get it already. Yeah. yeah. I agree. So um, I'm going to bring us to the ADA, decades of advocacy, um, you know, solidarity. For those people that might be listening that have a just very superficial understanding of what the ADA is, how would you like broadly describe it to someone who's not like an ADA expert like yourself? Like, what is the disabilities uh, with the Americans with Disabilities Act? Like, what is that? How would you explain that? Like, what, is there an elevator speech or, or a way of explaining <laughs> this? Because I know it's wide, it's deep, it's complicated, it's legislative language and, and all this other kind of stuff. So, like, how, how would you, like, package that in a way that somebody could kind of get their head around it and digest what the ADA is? Well, basically, the ADA is a civil rights law that protects the rights of individuals with disabilities 
people who are regarded as having a disability, people who are related to individuals with disabilities. It has a broad scope of coverage. It is working toward equality of opportunity, economic self-sufficiency, full participation in American life, and independent living. It is. It has five titles, covers almost every aspect of American life, employment, state and local government services, public accommodations, telecommunications, and then there are miscellaneous procedures or uh, things uh, in the Title V, and it also enhances the understanding of coverage of Section 504 of the Rehab Act, which covers anybody with any federal funding. When you talk about working towards, uh, that, that really jumped out at me. So we got the, we got this law on the books, right? Like, you know, in five different sections that are in there. It's very expansive, wide and deep. It's like not, not the game's not over, right? Like, you, I mean, like we're still working towards something, even with this law that's on there. If I'm pulling on anything that's meaningful here and this hopping on to that, that jumped out at me, like this working towards, what is that all about? Like working towards this, that is already law. Well, honestly, back in 1990, we thought we would be able to nail down the whole aspect about service animals and parking in the snap of a finger because it's so clear cut. There are things that aren't as clear cut. But believe you me, 32 years later, we are still fighting service dog issues. We are still fighting parking issues. I don't know why. I think part of it is you you got to realize people who were employers or merchants in 1991 probably are retired now. So we have a whole nother group of people we have to train and inform. Some people are afraid of the ADA and they want to pretend it doesn't exist. Some people are very open, try to comply, try to call us to understand anything they don't understand, which is best case scenario, I guess. It's just been way more complicated than anybody thought it would be, I guess. But we are making strides. Things are better. It's just a slow process and you have to deal with the fact that there is just a lot of individuals out there that have differing understandings about the law and different differing attitudes about people with disabilities. Yeah, I could, I, I, you know, I definitely, I can see where the understandings of the ADA and its interpretation can really be like gray areas, right? And that's where like lawsuits could happen, for instance. And then like, you know, over compliance with the ADA and then based on the litigation and some outcome of it, it either might impact the ADA or its enforcement of the ADA or change something about it because it's super technical and law and, and all these other kind of things. But say if I was trying to oversimplify what the ADA is all about and its ideals, like what is the spirit of the ADA all about to you? And, and as you see it, if we're going to try to really not make it a complicated you know, as it is in terms of all the different minutiae that goes into the ADA, what is the ideals and the spirit of the ADA? The ideals of the ADA are for individuals with disabilities to have independence. Because I don't 
deny that sometimes I am going to have to have help. Sometimes I act a, ask a kind stranger for help, but as much as possible, I want to get through my life with independence. I want to be integrated as fully as possible into American life. I want to be able to go to the movie with my children. I want to be able to go to the playground. I want to have dignity. I want people to understand that I am not my disability. I am not my wheelchair. I am an individual. I participate and hopefully uh, enhance our society through my actions. I'm interested, inquisitive. I'm always learning. I want dignity as a person. I would like respect. And thankfully, I have usually in my life received that. Depending on people's disabilities, our acceptance sometimes is different. I want equal opportunity. I don't want to go in, which I did early on in my life, and apply for a job and somebody say to me, well, what can you do? And, you know, this was when I was an adult, Air Force wife, college graduate. And honestly, I couldn't answer that question. And I'm usually not sarcastic, but I said, well, I don't ski. You know, I mean, what can you say? Anyway, that's a loaded question. Yeah. Yeah. I want equal opportunity to be considered. I want fairness. I want basic human fairness. And I want people to have effective communication. Wow. That's beautifully Um, stated. I want to know what people who have communication barriers want to say to me. It's just a package. It's a package that allows people with disabilities a full life. And it allows our contribution to this society. That is so beautifully articulated. So how do you then feel? 32 years after the passage of the ADA. What are some of the feelings that are circulating? You know, having worked so hard before the ADA, since the ADA, you know, have become, you know, someone that's, uh, you know, trained in the ADA, an advocate for the ADA, and done so many different things, well understanding of the law, certainly as you articulated there, the ideals, like how, what are some of the feelings that you have 32 years now? It's been long. Well, I suppose my first thing would be I feel blessed to have been involved with something that I have such passion about. Not everybody's that lucky. I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to meet the people I have met over the years, because when you share a passion with others, it's just so meaningful I feel blessed that we have moved forward and there are many uh, opportunities that I have now that I would not have had in the past. I don't feel the the um, effort is completed. I don't believe I probably will feel that it is completed by the time I leave this earth. I hope to involve others with passion to move forward into the future, always make this a priority, but it clearly has made my life easier. It has made my opportunities more bountiful. And as I said, 
just so fortunate to know the people around this country that I've had the opportunity to meet and work with. And then moving towards where your hopes are for the for the next generation. I, a, first of all, before I get there, is this work ever going to be finished? Like you said, you probably won't see it in your lifetime, but is there a finish line to this work? I, I doubt there is a finish line because as we move through training people and businesses and employers, those people are going to retire. They're going to resign. They're going to move to other companies. So I think there's going to be an ongoing need for training and uh, sensitivity. People don't always ask for sensitivity training, but when I'm training them on the facts of this law, I throw some sensitivity into it because people just need to understand that the people impacted are just like you, just like your family, just like everybody else in this country. We have the right to have freedom and independence in the United States. Amen. So we're talking about work, potentially no finish line. How would you describe your your role and your position, you know, as an ADA state affiliate and, and advocate and, and what you like are. So if someone's listening to you, Christine, and they're I, I, I'm moved, maybe someone else has moved and they're like, I want what she does. What is it you do? Like, how would you describe your job, your role, your position? Maybe that's changed uh, over the you know years, uh, you know, as you know, you're talking about being connected with the Southeast ADA Center and everything else like that. It is like, like, describe your role, describe your position. What is it that you actually do? Well, that might be kind of hard for me to do. But one thing I do is I do training and te- technical assistance for the Southeast ADA Center. And you can reach us at 1-800-949-4232. I also um, work with the Mississippi ADA Network doing in-state activities of training and awareness. I do really interesting things. For example, for our uh, protection and advocacy organization here in Mississippi, I was able to survey several prisons in our state. I mean, it was just a fascinating, fascinating thing. Um, I hope I was able to make the life easier for some of the incarcerated people, but protection and advocacy did go on to file a federal suit against the prisons in Mississippi to hopefully do that. I try to offer what I can to any entity that wants to know more. I I just love to be able to share my passion. I do a lot of regional activities. I do some national. I did did one international conference once, which was great. But what you would need to do is to do as much education as you possibly can on ADA if you're interested in access. I have to consider my own personal access, but that's not the law. I have to tell people what the law is, whether or not it is best for me or not. I can then add, this would make it even better. This would meet even more people's needs, but this is the law. And they need to train staff to understand how to appropriately interact with people with disabilities. Because sometimes that's where the first negative thing happens is 
you try to say, I'd like to buy a movie ticket or I'd like to, you know, get something on the top shelf. A person with a disability can genuinely ask for some kind of assistance. And if the person in the business does not know anything about disability, it doesn't go well. So a certain amount of training to your staff to let them know what is a reasonable request, what is an unreasonable request, and how to deal with people with disabilities in an effective way. And I think Centers for Independent Living can take just an incredibly uh, valuable role in doing that. Yeah, well, I think we're well positioned too. So when you do these trainings, are they um, a mix of the public, uh, you know, so city, county, state, federal even, or, uh, you know, also private businesses? Like who's, who, who are your typical recipients for these trainings? It probably would be all of the above. It could be universities, just private businesses. Uh, for example, uh, a, a series of banks we have here in Mississippi, they asked me to their executive office to train somebody from all of their banks on customer service and on access. And the Southeast ADA Center has a number of uh, very interesting presentations, trainings like on serving our customers, uh, that kind of thing. And you can, you know, you can set your people up. We, we hire someone new. So we're going to ask them to view these training sessions before they start, you know, just give them a head start. Do, do you ever like look over, uh, you know, organizations like policies and procedures and provide technical assistance to see if they you know, have what is necessary already on the books? Or is that something completely different from the services that you, you, you would offer? We, we talk to people about their policies and procedures. And if we cannot answer questions uh, at the ADA Center, we do our very best to refer people to an appropriately a, appropriate agency that can answer those questions. And we have great referrals that really help a lot. So, so when you're going into these businesses, do you typically tailor like because like the ADA is so expansive and wide and deep? Do they are do you tailor it to kind of like what they're looking for in terms of learning about the ADA that are specific to the roles and responsibilities that they might have themselves? Sure, I tell them what they want to know, and then I try to slip in a few extras that I would like for them to know. All right, is there is there a common like request for a certain type of training or understanding of the ADA that you get across agencies, or is it just very specific? Well, you know, a lot of them just want the general ADA training, things that apply specifically to them. Others do, you know, really just want one segment of the ADA like employment. So I do tailor it and try to meet the needs for their staff. When we do it in person, it makes it a little bit easier because they can interject along the way and I can identify things that, you know, but I guess if I was smarter, I could, you know, do the chat or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's harder when it's a two-dimensional uh, you know, interface. You you mentioned service animals earlier, and we do some um, 
you know, work with emergency management professionals and, you know, orienting them at times with the, what their roles and responsibilities are, you know, before, during and after disasters, effective communication and all those other kind of things. But I got to tell you, just from my, my own personal experience and providing such trainings, like, and even, even with some private businesses, I, we get, I think more common, like one of the most common questions we get is about service animals. Is there, is there a common like question that you get at all that like seems to cut across the board? I would agree with you. Service animals are just huge and it can have some pretty catastrophic consequences, especially in emergency management, if they don't understand the rules. Um, we had an individual, I live on the Mississippi Gulf Coast where Hurricane Katrina hit, and um, we had one individual in a with a disability who went to a shelter many years ago, who they told him he could not come into the shelter with a wheelchair. Oh, wow. He proceeded to go home. And after the hurricane was over, uh, rescuers found him on top of the roof of his home. Uh, if he had not been able to break through his ceiling and who, through his roof, obviously he would have been gone. There was an individual in New Orleans who had made three different arrangements. Her son was bedridden, very significantly disabled, made three uh, different transportation uh, arrangements. No one came. And the way their story ended was she crawled into bed beside him and they both died. So we really, I'm very passionate about emergency management. We really, really, really need to do all we can. And I have worked extensively here in Mississippi trying to, uh, for example, the front door of a shelter is accessible, but none of the emergency exits are accessible. Not only is that not safe, but it's not according to the ADA. So anyway, I, I think every every inroad we can make to emergency management is absolutely critical. Absolutely. You, you also talked about doing sensitivity trainings. Can you distinguish what the difference between the ADA type trainings are and your sensitivity trainings? Well, I guess in the sensitivity trainings, what I tend to do is just try to bring home the fact that people with disabilities are just like everybody else. We are a cross section of the entire population. Some people with disabilities are really nice. Some people with disabilities are angry. Some people have visible disabilities. Some people have invisible disabilities. That you just need to try to gather up your human compassion when you interact with people. It's just, it's humanity. It's just humanity. That really resonates with me because as somebody that's really interested in correcting like say the systemic inequalities that are seen out you know, around with disabilities, whether it's you know the difference between graduation rates with people with and without disabilities or unemployment rates, people with or and without disabilities or affordable accessible housing or transportation or health outcomes. You know, there's inequities you know across all these systems, you know, the justice system, as you mentioned earlier as well. It does seem like you know law and compliance and enforcement, you know, have a, a very important piece in this. And at the same time, you know, we're, we're still seeing gaps, even though it's been 32 years with this law and other laws and et cetera. 
someone had said uh, at one time when we were a fellow advocate and you know trying to correct these inequities, it's like, you know, we can do all we can with these laws and enforcement and compliance and everything else. Like, but at the end of the day, um, it's a really a matter of the heart. I feel like that's what you're saying when you talk about humanity. It's like until you know, it's like we got to appeal to all these different aspects. You know, the mind. You know, the law, but the heart. You know, and appealing to people's like human nature and that we're more alike than we are different. You know, it's just such an important piece of all of this as well. I totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah. And it's kind of like that one's almost like, you know, as hard as it might be to educate people on the, the law and roles and responsibilities and how to meet those roles and responsibilities and the technical assistance and, you know, enforcement and all these. I mean, that's really a heavy lift. But for me, the heart and getting to people's hearts, like that's that's more nebulous. And that's, you know, um, requires a certain talent you know, to be able to really get to, through to people's hearts. How do you, how do we get through to people's hearts? How do we do that? Well, I think by constantly reinforcing that we're just a person like everybody else moving through life the best way we can. I'll give you a contrast. When I graduated from high school, which was 1968, they had our graduation on a flatbed truck in the middle of the football stadium in Biloxi. I walked with braces and crutches then. So before the event occurred, I had to climb up those steps onto that flatbed truck, wait for my name to be called to receive my diploma. Everybody else lined up, you know, and walked up in line, walked up the steps, crossed down the steps. When I graduated from USM, the University of Southern Mississippi, I went and stood in front of the stage. And when my turn came, he came and handed me my diploma off the stage. I was down on the floor where the chairs were. But if I graduated from high school today or I graduated from college today, I would know that it was my right to be with my peers if it was in, if it was possible in any way to graduate like my peers and I would ask for that. So then today, the the batons being say passed off to this next generation to to advocate and to continue the work. How like what what does the work look like today as like compared to decades ago before it was law? Like what what is it that that needs to be done today that the the youth or the youth that are on the come up or even those of us that are still in it look like today in terms of ensuring that uh, people of all abilities can live an independent life? Well, I think it is incumbent on us to learn as much as we can about the ADA, to be as competent as we can with the physical requirements for access, to know as much as we can about communication, the requirements, and to share that willingly with anybody who will listen. And to help them understand in sharing this, that we are just people, we are just deserve the same access, the same opportunity as everybody else. And I mean, it's, it's meaningful. It, it gives me and others the feeling that we are doing something, not only that will help ourselves and our friends, 
but that it will impact people into the future to have a little bit easier of a time. And also everybody has such unique gifts. You know, we might be missing people by not allowing them independent access and participation. Yeah. You know, as you're saying that, I'm also like kind of thinking like, you know, how that, you know, the average listener that may not ever become say a certified ADA specialist like yourself and, you know, do formal trainings in it. But at the same time, I'm, I'm thinking as you're saying this, this is probably where the the real change is going to come is as individuals reaching out to other individuals, whether it's friends, family members, you know, people they come across in their day to day lives, orienting or educating or asking questions and making those like one on one connections and trying to make as many of those one on one connections as possible. So that like, you know, this message or these ideals or the spirit of what the ADA is all about can really spread and really kind of get to scale. Well, and as our ADA center, we do have a course you can take online that is to become a certified ADA coordinator. It's an excellent course. It really gives you a rounded uh, body of information that you can draw upon. There's not a requirement to be certified, but it is great training that enhances our ability to do what we do in the the, uh, community. It is meaningful. It is working with a great group of people. It's worth your while if you're interested in this. You've got to be, you've got to know the technicalities in the law, but trust me, it's worth it. Well, we're going to link up, uh, you know, all the information and resources uh, that you want to share with me um, after this into the show notes. So every episode is accompanied by show notes to where they can click on links or, or whatever it is that you would want to share. We'll make sure uh, offline here that I get everything that you're uh, wanting to share, you know, out to the listeners. Uh, before we uh, do sign off, though, you know, I, I feel like you do have kind of uh, answered it in, in, in some of your responses that you've uh, just given. But it, but it is something I do ask, you know, all our listeners as we kind of close things out here. What does the independent life or, or living independently mean to you? Independent living means that I can have my life just like everyone else expects to have their life. I can go about my business. I can be productive. I can enjoy recreation. I can allow my children to freely enjoy life because if I couldn't, then when they were little, they couldn't have either. Um, I just um, value the fact that Congress and our country was sensitive in understanding that people with disabilities can make wonderful contributions to this world. I'm very thankful, very thankful for that. Well, I'm very thankful for you and uh, all the work that you've done before the ADA was even into law. I'm thankful for, for your for your mom, what she really did to, to help raise you and to what she showed you, whether it was uh, no limits you know, mindset or making major life changes or, you know, accompanying you into places where, you know, things needed to be articulated. I'm very grateful for, for the life experiences that you had along the way before these laws were in effect and, and uh, the courage it must have taken to do a lot of those kind of things and for connecting with the movement to, to be captivated by the movement, to do the hard work and sacrifices that were necessary in the movement to provide the, the opportunity for, like you said, this country to acknowledge the, 
and appreciate the, the role people with disabilities play in our society. And then since the law, all the work that you've done to educate and orient people about what the law is, to not just reach them intellectually or uh, legally, but also connect to their humanity and their heart. Very grateful for all that you've done and, and, and continue to do in this very important work. So thank you so much, Christine. Well, thank you so much for saying that. It's, it's been a pleasure being with you. Thank you. And thank you for Laura Lee. <laughs> I met her before I met you. You know, she, she to me is a, 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 also a very big role model. And, and it's very inspiring to me to always work towards uh, learning and improving. And uh, I can see why she considers you to be her mentor. So it's, uh, it's, it's an honor to, to share this space and have this conversation with you, Christine. Thank you very much. I, I love her too. <laughs> now I love you. <laughs> well, thank you, Christine. And to everybody, happy 32nd anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. As you can hear, the work continues onward and upward. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352 352- 378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.